Hi folks, thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A few things before I let you get to the show. We are going to be live as part of Podcast for Palestine on Sunday the 28th of January in the Sugar Club and there are limited tickets available on eventbrite.ie right now. The link is at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now. It's 15 quid a ticket and all proceeds are going to Gaza. So come along, support a great cause and have a great night's entertainment. Hope to see lots of you there. Uh, also, we need your support. The Tortoise Shack relies entirely on you to keep the show on the road. We've no ads, we've no sponsors and we don't have to pull any editorial punches because of any corporate interests. We're activists first and foremost. And when we say we rely on you, it's because we are you. So if you get something from the pods, give something back. Join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise The link for that is at the bottom of the podcast you're about to listen to. Thanks for all the support. Thanks for everybody who likes and shares. But come on board for 2024 and help this independent podcast platform keep trucking and keep throwing the odd haymaker here and there. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the show. Hello everyone, welcome to PALCAST. Today is uh, January 2nd, 2024. The new year is is, um, kicking off and the genocide is still going on in in Gaza. Welcome to PALCAST again, brought to you by Yusuf Jamal here in Istanbul. And uh, it's 7 p.m. here. And uh, today I'm joined by my wonderful co-hosts, Helena Coben, the president of Just Word Educational, and Tony Groves of um, the Eco Chamber um, podcast in, in Dublin. Uh, as you know, Israel has not clarified early in its military campaign against Gaza its objectives. No one knows when Israel is going to to end this genocide, and um, they have, you know, an open plan of invading Gaza. The Americans are pressuring them to have a timeline, but Netanyahu is not interested because the day the genocide will will end in Gaza, um, it will be uh, the last day in Netanyahu's political life. And this is clear to to everyone. Uh, We're going to discuss this and the uh, balance of power within Gaza because the Israelis are suffering um, a huge uh, amount of of losses every day. um, Dozens of Israeli soldiers are sent to hospitals. Uh, Some are killed, some are injured. but also because of the change in the balance of, of power in the region. Uh, the Middle East is not the Middle East of 15 years ago. There are emerging middle powers in, in the region. Uh, there are more countries taking action against Israel. The, uh, you know, the remarkable decision of South Africa to refer Israel to the uh, International Court of Justice is important to mention here. Um, the decision of Malaysia to ban Israeli ships to dock in in uh, their seaports, uh, as well as you know the huge protests taking place uh, uh, across the globe and the pressure and the boycott. There was a huge protest just on January first here in Istanbul um, that that um, stopped at the Galata uh, Tower, and there were. You know, tens of thousands of people who who participated in the protests. There are a lot of things to talk about, Helena. So, 
this is a long introduction, I know. Um, but I think, as, as I said, there are a lot of things to discuss and talk about. A huge number of things, Yusuf, and thanks for that super introduction, which you just, you really summed up so much um, excellently about the balance power. I have to tell you, I'm starting to call that part of the world West Asia now because the Middle East is a very Eurocentric way of referring to it. So just for the listeners, when you hear me talking about the West Asia, it's the same as what other people mean by the Middle East. Um, I think the one factor that I would add to what you said, um, Yusuf, well, a couple of factors, actually. One is the Houthis from Yemen and the Ansarallah movement that is the de facto government of Yemen, which has been guarding the Bab al-Mandeb Strait at the southern end of the Red Sea um, and enforcing a boycott against trade with Israel. I mean, they are really the BDS heroes of of the year right now, the uh, the Houthis in, in Yemen. They've actually, they've forced major shipping lines to go all around the, South Africa instead of going through the Red Sea um, and, and the Suez Canal, which is imposing huge costs on shipping companies and other companies. And the Houthis have actually already in the weeks since they started this wonderful boycott action, they've clarified that it's only cargoes for Israel that they don't want to see passing through the Red Sea. And a couple of the major Asian shipping companies have already complied with that. And they've said that they, they are um, undertaking to, they are, you know, reporting to the Houthis, to the Ansar Allah movement, the de facto government, that they are not carrying any cargoes for Israel. I mean, this is a, a tremendous new thing. We know, obviously, that the American Navy has tried to counter, or rather, more importantly, that the American Navy has tried to build a coalition of international trading partners to to work with them in the Red Sea to counter the Houthi boycott. But they've been very, very unsuccessful because major countries in Europe and elsewhere do not want to be seen either by their own people or internationally as supporting the American-Israeli genocide in Gaza to be seen as either supporting or protecting the genocide. So that that's a major new thing. I think the other thing we also really need to look at is the strength of the resistance inside Gaza, which has been very much stronger than I had expected. I'll be quite frank about that. You know, I knew that they had resistance capabilities, but the sophistication and and just sheer tactical smarts of the resistance have been notable. They've actually forced the Israeli occupation army into the longest military campaign that Israel has ever had. You know, back in Lebanon in 1982, when they went into Lebanon, I think it was around 10 weeks until they had the ceasefire. This time, it's already nearly 13 weeks. And, you know, the Israelis are getting very bogged down. As Yusuf mentioned, they're taking a lot of casualties and they are looking for a way to thin out their forces and, and reduce their presence in Gaza. So 
so many factors to, to consider, and I'm delighted that to be here with Tony and with you, Yusuf, so that we can discuss them. Can I make one small point on the Houthi um, uh, um, actions that have taken place? There's this constant thing where we talk about you know this western viewpoint of the world where we where we want freedom freedom to to exercise democracy freedom of speech freedom to to um every, you know our peoples to be who they want to be yet the only thing that they've picked up arms for is to keep free trade to keep the free trade going there is more freedom to to the trade routes there's more freedom to the commodities and the issues that we can commercialize and 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 apologies to both of you you wouldn't be aware of um one of my one of my biggest um people i love the most is emmett kirwan he's, he's an irish poet uh, and uh, he he talks about that they will give you as much liberalism as you want but until you, once you question property rights, they will beat you like a snare drum. And this is very clear when you talk about what's happening to the Houthis now, that there's been the US and, by the way, um, Helena, the UK have agreed to come on board on this, on this initiative to try and stop this because it comes down to your impinging on commerce. It, it's not about the genocide. It's not about the ethnic cleansing and all of these things. It's about impinging on commerce and, and, um, I apologize, folks, I'm not feeling very well myself at the moment, but I do think it's really clear that freedom as a word has been de- devalued by what, what, what we're doing here um, in terms of the West's uh, position on this. And it just shows you where they've where they've put their, their interests in and wh- where they've applied their, their military might as opposed to helping stopping the other things. You know, this reminds me of, uh, you know, living in Gaza under siege for... Um, you know, almost two decades and how there were some initiatives, including during this genocide indeed, to break the siege of Gaza in uh, 2010, Israel killed nine Turkish activists um, after they raided uh, the Mavi Marmara, a Turkish ship that brought aid into Gaza in international waters and they killed nine people and they got away with it. so when we talk about you know the siege imposed on Israel, we should always remember that Palestinians have been living under siege in Gaza. They're not allowed to have free trade uh, since 1967. There was only one ship that made it to Gaza that carried Vittorio Arrigoni, the uh, Italian activist who came all the way from Italy to stand in solidarity with Gaza. And only, only after media pressure, international pressure on Israel, that the Israeli government decided, I think it was under Barak uh, at the time, Ehud Barak, to allow one ship since 1967 to get into Gaza. But the world doesn't talk about this because Palestinians are not relevant in this conversation. They only talk and get involved countries that has no business in 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 in, in what's happening in 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 the region, um, bringing their warships and threats. Uh, only when Israel is is harmed, but for Palestinians to to live under siege and never have a seaport, an airport, to have free trade and free access to to goods and free you know movement of of people, this is not even something that that they talk about. And this again shows their their um, hypocrisy. But as you said, Helena, too, the world is changing. We have new forces, state actors and non-state actors emerging. Uh, the world is not 
the word of 1991, when the, the Cold War has ended, we have new forces with economic powers. In fact, uh, more countries have just yesterday joined the BRICS, with the exception of Argentina. We have Saudi Arabia, which has a considerable you know, economic and political power in the region, joining BRICS. And, uh, and and not only yes. yeah not only Saudi Arabia but of the five new members of the BRICS grouping, four of them are in West Asia and North Africa. There's Egypt, there's Saudi Arabia, there's the UAE, and there's Iran. All of them very substantial powers. Well, the UAE is substantial because of its money, but you know we know that. Which it's not trivial either, the UAE as a as a political actor in the region. But for me, um, I've been looking forward to January first for quite a while because obviously it's not it's not true that the BRICS will overnight transform the entire global system. But so much of what goes on in in global geopolitics has to do with economics and finance. And what these new powers, we can call them the BRICS 10 now, um, what they have is economic power and a lot of rapidly growing economic and financial integration with each other, which is important because over the past 50 years, the United States has exercised its power against the peoples of the world, not only through the military, but also through financial means like sanctions, killing people, you know, around the world in much larger numbers through sanctions than it has done through military action and, you know, really bullying and forcing people to do what Washington wants through financial power. So that's the importance of BRICS. BRICS is not a military alliance, but it's a very powerful economic grouping that will allow all these countries to really start to to prosper. And like, just we should look at this. Yusuf mentioned that, you know, the world, the the region of West Asia is not the same as it was in 1991. That was the year that, you know, the US military launched its massive great uh, regime change. Well, uh, the the operation in, in Kuwait to push Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, huge military alliance. But since then, the United States has done an, a tremendous amount to foment the differences between Shiite powers and Sunni powers in West Asia, including, you know, trying to build up support from the Saudis and others, other Sunni powers, build up support to topple the regime in Iran, the government in Iran or building up support from Sunni powers to topple the government in Syria or to confront Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, all of which are um, Shiite to some extent. I mean, the <laughs> the Syrian government is a little bit different. But with the, the new Chinese diplomacy in the region, we saw last March that they were able to make a reconciliation between Saudi Arabia and Iran which is earth-shattering and literally changes the whole politics of West Asia. And I think that's an important thing to remember when we look at how powerful Hamas 
and the other resistance organizations are politically throughout West Asia and globally. It's not just a matter of their military power in Gaza, but, you know, there is no way that the U.S. Helena, I had a great chat with them. I don't know if you're aware of Tyg Hickey. He's a satirist and comedian who does a lot of viral videos and he's very he's very active on, on the cause of Palestine. And we talked about the fact that what we used to what we used to dis- discriminately refer to as the non-aligned countries. There's more of us than there are of them and they and they're not happy with our uh, how the West has behaved over the last few hundred years. But I think it's important we point out for listeners' benefits on when you talk about the BRICS, there's another process going on, which is what what it, obviously it's hegemony fighting to survive itself, but it's also the de de-dollarification of the global economy. Yeah. And and that is certainly taking place now in front of our eyes. That is happening. And the soft power of China, which I didn't think I'd be saying on this podcast is interesting because China doesn't go to war. China uses its its influence, it uses its power, and it plays the long game. And that has and that has um, seen where to, to the point where it has denuded American hegemony to a to a degree whereby the, even the the word de-dollarification is now commonplace. If we wouldn't have spoken about it five years ago, ten years ago, but here we are now. Um, and I just think it's interesting to say that what's happened. In Gaza, um, because what we were told was that that all of these deals would be done. Everybody would would make peace with Israel. There'd be a norm- normalization of of relations, and, and, and it, they would forget about the Palestinians. Exactly. Remember exactly. that was that was, <laughs> that was the key point. That's where that's where I. Uh, sorry for the long intro, but that's where I'm going. The idea was that we'd forget about the Palestinians, and then we would accept this because ultimately the hegemony says that's what you have to do. But it turns out the hegemony isn't um, uh, as isn't par- hegemonic anymore. <laughs> exactly, and 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 if I can be really selfish, Yusuf, I want to make one point: the the Mavi Mara. There were people uh, on on that on the flotilla from Ireland who went, including a uh, well-known Irish rugby player, Trevor Hogan, at the time who was not not a person of no significance and um, now when we march in Dublin for Palestine week after week after week the Dublin footballers have a, their own banner like I'm talking if you talk about our our own d- domestic sports the Dublin footballers are the biggest brand in, in Irish in Irish sports and they have their own banner Dublin footballers for Palestine so I do think it I yes absolutely the Mavi Mara was not an Irish in, 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 but, but we were present there so I want to give Trevor Hogan shout out because I know Trevor actually and he'll probably listen to this so fair play Trevor well done Thank you, Tony, for doing that. And, and, and back to, you know, the pressure on Israel. Um, Israel thought that they will be done with Gaza within a few weeks. That was their um, estimates, I believe, when they started their genocide in, in, in Gaza. And I have written an article early in, in the genocide saying, despite the brutality of Israel in, in Gaza, Palestinians will not leave Gaza. Uh, my family uh, had to relocate uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, but they're not planning to leave Gaza. So there are people moving within their areas and towns to safer places or what they think is, is a safer place, and, and but they're said, not could, planning could, to Could leave. I j- just jump in here and say, I mean, when we say re- relocate, that that's far too s- sterile a word for what's happening. I mean, people are being forced out of their homes under pressure. They ha- they can't take stuff with them. They go to places where there's no food. I mean, 
Oh, I just God, want to yeah. underline. We, 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 we had a shell falling on, on our house, and thanks God it did not explode. Um, that's, that's what forced my family to seek a safer um, place. Uh, but we know, too, that there is no safe place in, in, in Gaza. Um, and and, then and we the have, people are not going to leave. I mean, that is yeah. a very important point. Yeah, 70% of people in Gaza are refugees, including my family, so they are not willing to become refugees again. They're not planning to become refugees again. And regardless of the cost, today I saw a video from a friend of mine who um, Israeli forces forced to um, put a GoPro camera on his head and get inside a tunnel. The amount of destruction, I've never seen anything. It's just like entire neighborhoods are reduced to rubble. So Gaza, Gaza City now in the north of Gaza is rubble. The world has to understand this. Even if the genocide ends now, people cannot go back and, and, and live in, in, in their houses. In fact, Israel killed 10 Palestinians yesterday as they attempted to cross from the south of Gaza to the, to the north. Although a lot of Israeli forces, have, as, as you highlighted, Helena, because of the uh, losses the Israeli army is, is suffering um, uh, from in Gaza, uh, they have withdrawn five battalions from Gaza uh, over the past uh, three days. And I think this is an important uh, development. They're using a new strategy where they target people, houses, using drones, not even like F-16s and F-35s, because there are also Israeli pilots who are refusing to provide, um, you know, aerial coverage to the Israeli forces because they're worried that many Israeli forces might be killed because they're, you know, bombing Gaza crazily now. They're like, you know, the bomb is not going to say, oh, excuse me, could you please sit aside? You're an Israeli soldier. Uh, I just want to kill Palestinians. They're, they did kill Israeli soldiers, either by shelling them, and this is in, in the Israeli media, uh, or by, you know, aerial um, strikes that targeted Israeli forces by, by mistake, friendly uh, fire, as they, they put it. But I want, I want to, to stop here with this, um, you know, interesting um, paragraph from Haaretz today. I have the newspaper on my phone in front of me and says state officials fear Hague will charge Israel with, with genocide. And I think Israel is, is thinking twice now about what uh, South Africa has, has done at the ICJ. And I think this is an important development. Genocide is a serious crime and accusation. And they will think twice. Yeah, um, what you're saying about the dis level of destruction in Gaza, Yusuf, um, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal recently that pointed out that the Israelis have dropped more munitions on Gaza in three months than the U.S. dropped on the whole of Iraq, which is a massive great country, during nine years of occupation. So, Actually, that you know, people are saying that Gaza City, Khan Yunus, all the all the places that have been um, attacked in this way, it looks like Dresden or it looks like Stalingrad. So, to me, um, I mean, these are just obviously all the images that we see are just horrendous. You know, whether it's destroyed buildings, whether it's it's you know bodies piled up um, or whatever. But the thing about the, the rubble is that it provides great cover for the resistance fighters, and it terrifies the Israeli military. That's one thing. 
And the other thing is that clearly the reconstruction of Gaza is going to be much, much bigger of an operation than anything that has happened. You know, over the past 15 years, every so often the Israeli military would go into Gaza and do what they call mowing the lawn, which is an outrageous, it's a disgusting term for killing people to bully them. But um, every time they've done that, afterwards, you know, the Europeans and the Japanese and all these international actors would send some money along to rebuild, you know, the the few city blocks or whatever that were destroyed. And of course, the Israeli um, shipping companies and contractors would, would make a nice profit off the reconstruction. I, I refer to this as a kind of very grisly Keynesian make-work operation for, for Israeli profit centers. But this time, the reconstruction is, is going to be total. It'll be like reconstructing Dresden or Hamburg or, or Stalingrad after World War II. It will be a reconstruction challenge of, that the world has not seen, honestly, since 1945. So for that reconstruction, I think it's really important that Israel not be in charge of that, that Israel not be allowed to make a profit off that, that Israel not be allowed to impede that process. And that, that that's where I want the United Nations to step in and say, we are going to reopen and rehab Gaza port. We are going to reopen and rehab Gaza airport. We're going to come in through the Mediterranean. We're going to come in through Egypt and Israel will not be allowed to stop us. Helena, can I come in? I just want to make it. Um, yesterday, just by coincidence, I spoke again to the current UN Special Rapporteur for Housing. Uh, and Raj is a good guy. Raj uh, knows what he's talking about when he talks about domicide. And the Financial Times, you know, as we know, the Financial Times is a big left-wing uh, outlet. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, published a piece saying that 80% of homes in Gaza are either destroyed or uninhabitable. And Raj talks about, you know, domicide being recognized, domicide, the destruction of home being recognized as an international war crime. In this in this situation, and I hope to get him on this podcast in the next week or two. That's that's uh, he's 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 he he knows his he knows his eggs are eggs. But but my point being, having spoken to to Raj, um, I'm confident that 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 there are people who understand that this is this goes beyond anything we have seen. You know, entire neighborhoods destroyed, all of this destroyed. Uh, Yusuf, you're you're not in your head, but the the truth the, the truth of it is apparently. That sort of footage is not being shown back in Israel. They, they're being shown, you know, constantly bombarded with with the other um, type of narrative, whereas the truth of what's happening in Gaza has been neglected. Yet, as I said, the UN Special Rapporteur for Housing tells me, no, he wants domicide very much on the agenda for this. So I think that's encouraging if, if, there's, if, if nothing else is. Yes, absolutely, Tony. And... Um I think two days ago, there was a statement by Israel's Minister of Finance, Smorich, uh, who's named after a town in Ukraine, surprise, um, saying that he envisions the future of Gaza, uh, where it only has 100,000 Palestinians, 100 to 200,000 Palestinians. And I, I want to remind, you know, 
this minister who's uh, very right wing that you know after three months of bombing insane bombing of entire residential blocks of water of solar panels of hospitals of infrastructure of historical sites of life in Gaza if ever everything like literally everything was bombed bakeries Palestinians are still there they did not go to Egypt and um, even in the north I saw footage yesterday from Jabalia refugee camp. It was crowded. This is a reminder who owns the land here. But another conversation they should have and they, they should think about seriously if they care about about their uh, presence in, in, in the region is that they killed 30,000 Palestinians so far, including those under the rubble. And those 30,000 Palestinians have families. They should think about the future generation and what they think of Israel. If they cannot defeat a group of fighters with light weapons today in Gaza because of the you know their beliefs, and you've seen how some of these you know fighters would literally like jump in, in, into tanks, uh, they're fearless. But then they should think about the, the children of people they killed in Gaza, 30,000 people and their relatives and their families, their neighbors. What they going to do in the future? Can they defeat them? Yeah, Is just the on, answer? On, on that note, Yusuf, what happened, you know, because I spent all that time in Lebanon in the 1970s. I left just before the big Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982. It was a hard battle that they fought. Ten, 10 weeks of battle, and it ended with the PLO forces being forced to leave Beirut. And as we know, after that, there were just terrible massacres in the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps. But, you know, so the Israelis were in charge, in, in, in military control of the whole of um, the southern one-third of Lebanon. And what happened? Something nobody had expected. Hezbollah. There was no Hezbollah before there was the Israeli occupation of South Lebanon. Hezbollah didn't even exist. But the fact of Israel's brutal control of South Lebanon incubated Hezbollah into the force that it is today. You know, people talk about Hezbollah or the Houthis as though they are just kind of Iranian pawns. Hezbollah is not an Iranian pawn, and neither are the Houthis. I, I know I've studied Hezbollah quite a lot, and I've you know interviewed the leaders and looked at their amazing record because it took them 18 years. But at the end of 18 years, they were able to expel Israel from the whole of Lebanon, and then in you know the Israelis came back in 2006, thought they would have another go, and they, it was a complete fiasco from the Israeli point of view in 2006. So, you know, they've had to deal with Hezbollah ever since. The Israeli military occupation of Gaza has lasted 56 years, coming up for 57 years. Doesn't mean that Israel owns Gaza. Doesn't mean that Israel owns the West Bank. It just means that the resistance continues to simmer, to organize, to strategize, to get smarter and smarter and smarter. So this this military occupation is not going to last. I, I think it's not going to last actually for very much more than, let's say, 18 months. Just one quick thing on that. Our, our much 
law um mourned friend uh Rifat Alarir would get very upset when people would mention that you know as if you know these were just proxies you know that they yeah. uh that the resistance was just because Iran put them up to it uh, and he knew and he would he would chastise me for it you know if we're talking about it in the geopolitical thing of saying oh this is just this no the people in on the ground in Gaza who are fighting have the right to defend their, their, their where they're from and have the right to to protect where they're from. Let's be clear, like that's where international law stands. Is is stands. So he he would have he would have chastised anybody who's listening to this, going, you know, what what are they talking about? Hezbollah? What are they talking about? Uh, these these are proxy groups. No, people have a, people want to stand and and on their own two feet for for dignity, for integrity, for the right to live. Just a just. Just equality under international law. That's that's not that big an ask, really. But yet, it's um, it's seldom discussed, particularly when it comes to this conflict, because everybody apparently, if you don't mention October seventh every every ninety seconds, you're you're an apologist for Hamas, and you know, frankly, I'm fed up of it. Sorry, Yusuf. Yeah, Tony, that's right. I mean, there are five hundred and three Palestinians, um, including five who were killed. In the West Bank, since the the um, you know it's over the past year in 2023, and you know the way Israel targets Gaza is not is not about Hamas. In my point of view, uh, they just use October 7 as an excuse to carry out plans they they had in their war droves for for many years to depopulate Gaza. It's a war on Palestine. When you target you know, entire residential buildings, families, and push people out and kill 30,000 Palestinians. That's not, that's not you know, I, I, I doubt that there are more than 2,000, 3,000 Hamas fighters among, among them. It's, it's a war on Palestinians, and they're trying to get rid of Palestinians because, again, 70% of people in Gaza are refugees, and they live across the border from what used to be their towns and villages. So about the numbers that you were mentioning, Yusuf, um, you said you think they're probably not more than 2,000 fighters. I don't know how many there are. But what is I find really notable is that the Israeli um, military and their media are constantly saying, oh, we've killed 8,000 fighters. We've killed, you know, we're, we're nearly there. We've nearly killed everyone. And you think, where'd they get the number 8,000? And it's actually, if you look at the casualty figures of Roughly, the reported casualty figures now about twenty one thousand, and everybody says it's roughly seventy percent women and children. And let's underline that: roughly seventy percent of those who've been killed have been women and children. But the other thirty percent that happens to add up to the, to the what the Israelis claim. You know that they've killed eight thousand fighters. They are actually counting every single adult male in Gaza as a fighter. And and that's how they come up with their number. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's quite untrue. I think, Yusuf, right at the beginning of this episode, you made a really good point that Netanyahu doesn't want to finish this war because he knows that the mo- the moment he does so, he's politically like his his tenure as prime minister is is going to be over. And I think that's that's quite right. I don't know what he's going to do. Um, in order to keep the war going, but I'm sure he will manage in some way or another. Um, I just want to say, sitting here in Washington, D.C., on the traditional lands of the Piscataways that were, you know, 
seized by white settlers 300 years ago, um, that the, the settler colonial project in Gaza and the West Bank is not going to succeed. Um, and I think we're starting to see how it's crumbling. It's crumbling not only on the ground um, through the, the military and other actions that are being taken in defense of the Palestinians, but, but it's, it's going to crumble internationally because everybody is seeing how brutal their project is we we're seeing it you know on tiktok and youtube and whatever right now it was actually just about exactly the same in 1948 but we didn't have the same means of seeing what was happening in real time people outside in 1967 they tried to ethnically cleanse the west bank you know there are some you know kind of grainy black and white photos of that but now the fact that the whole world can see what's going on it means that the project is is doomed honestly yeah i think that's a really interesting point helen and i just be very concerned from the the here here's my my pushback to both of you that while we're doing this gaza bleeds the west bank bleeds and every day we're losing people um every hour there's another atrocity and um, I also want to push back and say this is not to you, to either of you. It's to the media that are becoming disinterested. It's no longer leading the news. It's no longer becoming. Um, it's no longer the top of the agenda. And that is where um, man's inhumanity to man is the worst part. Where we can look the other way and say we almost get um, we almost get uh, genocide fatigue for <laughs> for want of a better term, and it worries me because this why this po- podcast, by the way, when Yusuf approached me and said he wanted to do it, I thought it was so important because I knew that this would happen. It was an inevitability. I, I you knew that people would move on. We'd all have Christmas and New Year's, and we'd all move on. But the simple fact is, you don't have the luxury if you're sitting in Gaza right now, and every few hours there's another atrocity, and you know people are. And now we, we now they're again quickly. Yusuf, you mentioned Haaretz. You can say what you want. They are probably the best coverage of what's actually genuinely happening than than any other Western outlet, certainly. And they're talking about the fact that, you know, famine has been weaponized now. You, you know, it's 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 horrendous. My my friend Zach is sleeping in a tent. He's sleeping in a tent on the floor. And and he's my pal, he should be back in Dublin. We should be we should be down having <laughs> going out for for a bit of crack, but no, it's not available. So yeah, so I'm worried that people will move on. We won't, but the challenge to everybody else is to make sure that you don't allow genocide fatigue to slip in. I think we've seen this uh Tony and, and Helena with the New Year celebrations. Uh, where Gaza was very present. There were protests everywhere, like the New Year celebrations um, were turned into protests in in solidarity with the people of Gaza. And uh, this is an important uh, indication that people will not get used to genocide in in, in Gaza, and this will not happen. Um, Israel wanted, and I, I want to conclude with this, the death and genocide and destruction of of, of Gaza to be um, the end of or the last chapter in in the Palestinian cause. But what is happening is the contrary of that. 
the opposite of that. Palestine is back on the world agenda. Palestine is back on the map of the world. Everyone is talking about Palestine. Everyone is talking about Rafat and his poetry. I saw a picture just now from New York City, from the subway. Someone um, wrote the words of, of um, Rifat about the uh, Democratic Party and their responsibility for the genocide in, in Gaza. But also another picture of someone writing Rifat's poetry. If I must die, you must live to tell my story on the back of their jackets. And, nice, you know, they're nice. going around in New York City in one of the protests and this is the message that we have as Palestinians. It's a message of life. It's a message of liberation. It's a message of a future. And after a hundred years, I think it's been more than that. A hundred and um, how many years? Three plus three, that's 106 years, seven years now, 2024. Palestinians are still there since the British colonization of Palestine in 1917. We did not disappear, and we're not going to disappear. And I want to, to, this is my favorite quote, you know, Helena, I want to conclude with this quote that by Ibrahim Nasrallah, who I met in, in Philadelphia, and I, I told him that Rifat taught, uh, taught us in Gaza your, your novels. And uh, I took a picture with him, and I sent it to Rifat, and Rifat was very happy to, to see it. Ibrahim uh, Nasrallah says in one of his novels that after all these years under occupation, we are still beautiful, as if we live above occupation, not not under it. And I will stop here. But um, before we, we, we end this episode, I would like to um, thank our co-sponsors in, in Malaysia, the Hashim Sani Center for Palestine Studies. Uh, and I would like to thank our um, wonderful co-hosts, Tony Groves in, in, in Dublin, the Eco Chamber podcast, and Helena Coben from Washington, D.C., um, Helena is, is the president of Just Word Educational and I'm looking forward to having uh, another conversation on Gaza with, with you guys um, uh, next, next week. Thank you very much. <laughs>